Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God be and abide with you this day as we continue our series about revealing Jesus through this season of Epiphany, which is a time of revelation of who Jesus is. Uh, through the, the gospel readings that we have in this season, there's, there's signs, there's indications, there's hints or declarations that are very direct about who Jesus is and what he is about. John's gospel, in fact, is organized in some degree around signs that happen along the way. And here in John chapter 2, John presents the first of the signs. The narrative presents the signs as events, as miracles or demonstrations of Jesus' power. And the Bible says that they happened. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John records these events And so we take those at face value, at uh, these are events that took place in this way, okay? First of the signs is when Jesus turns water into wine, possibly a, a familiar story, possibly something that you've heard maybe multiple times. And um, there are some interesting concepts and parallels and allusions to point out, allusions with an A illusions, not illusions. It's not a sleight of hand or some kind of illusion that Jesus did this. He records it as if it happened exactly like it says, and that's what we're going to believe. The Bible says it, we're going to believe that. But there's a few things in the text that are interesting to take note of. So before we get into, you know, what took place and how it all happened, and we will talk about that, first I want to talk about a few things that are in the text the third day. This is in verse 1. It says, on the third day, um, and then it goes on to explain, describe it. Third day from when? Is this just, you know, John inserting or telling us it's the third day, knowing, as he writes this down, a third day that is of vast importance that happens at the resurrection. It's the third day since Jesus was crucified. So is it that third day, or, you know, a parallel to it, that it's, you know, Jesus overcoming death and the grave happened on the third day, and here's another third day, possibly. It was the third day, potentially, from when they started the journey toward or into Galilee, which is, if you back into chapter 1, at the back uh, or end of the chapter, it describes, you know, then they went back into Galilee, and um, so that's potentially what it's talking about. See, chapter 1 has had, um, you know, these things happened, and then the next day this happened, the next day this happened, so a couple of times, and then you hit chapter 2, and it's the third day. Or, and I think this is interesting, If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, there's a series of days. And what happens on the third day in creation is that the water is gathered into places and dry land appears. And then on that land, fruit trees bearing their fruit. So here on this third day, there's water and there's the fruit of the vine that are in view. I don't know if that's what John has in mind, but bear in mind this, that in the beginning of chapter 1 of John, that he was uh, 
talking about light and creation, the very beginning, the prologue, that there's, you know, nothing was made except through this one, the word made flesh. So is this continuing that kind of theme that day one has happened with creation and light, and here we are on day three with water and fruit, or what comes from fruit? I don't know. It's interesting. Another parallel is that there's a wedding that's happening. It's important to know, and, and reading the narrative, you know, we know things about weddings and what they're like, but a wedding is an intimate relationship, or it's used to, to show us this intimate relationship between God and his people Israel, and that's portrayed repeatedly. One example is in Hosea chapter 2, where the relationship between God and Israel is a, a marriage, There's a fullness of the messianic age that prophesied using marriage, and Isaiah chapter 62 uh, describes that. And the consummation will be celebrated with the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, with his bride, the church, and that's described in Revelation. So as John's presenting this wedding, does he have more in view than this event that's taking place? And, of course, there's wine. In the Old Testament, there's a physical and spiritual joy that's connected to wine, and we see that in Genesis chapter 27, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Psalm 104 says wine is to gladden the heart. Wine is a representation of abundance and also a future hope. Isaiah chapter 25 says at the last day, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And maybe John has in view that that's what's taking place here. That there's more to this narrative that this took place as John presents it, but there are these themes woven into what John presents here that as his first readers would have maybe understood or been looking for, or these are are hints and allusions to other parts of the Bible and things that are important to understand, that the feast is coming, and that the Lord will provide in that feast well-aged wine to gladden the heart. For now, though, let's focus on the reality and the meaning of Jesus' first sign and this revelation of his identity and his purpose, turning water into wine. Remember March 2020? How can we forget, right? But in March uh, March 2020, there was a a town in Italy where there was a a malfunction at a, a winery with their bottling line, and as a result, there was some valve that failed, and so wine went into the pipes of this town, and some homes around the winery could turn on the faucet, and wine would come out. So I guess not everybody remembers March of 2020 the same way. (laughs) Not quite the same. Easy to explain, a failed valve, a a winery in the neighborhood, and you can get 
wine out of your faucet. But here, here in this scene in Cana, there's water turned into wine in an event that shows us perfect plans and possibilities. We make plans. We want everything to be perfect, right? We want things to be perfect. When we're planning an event, we want things to go perfectly or at least, at least very good. If we plan a party, if we plan a wedding feast, reception, in our case, for most of us, we want that to be something people remember. Remember when we used to hang out regularly and connect with people in a, in a way where we would be together. Maybe hosted a party and provided more than enough. Or maybe had a potluck and asked people to bring a dish, but you yourself, you know, made sure to provide two or three things so that there would be at least enough, if not more than enough, for people to have. We plan for what we expect most of the time, right? We plan for what we expect. If we're expecting a dozen people, we plan for a dozen, maybe a few more, just to be sure that if someone shows up really hungry, they're not going to eat everything and have the later people who come end up without. We plan for what we expect. I remember when Paula and I got married, we, we went through a stage of planning, and for Max and his fiance, that's what they're doing. Lately, it seems quite often what they're doing is planning and preparing because their wedding is coming. There's decor and venues and service options and reception planning and catering that needs to be figured out. In the first century, weddings were a week-long event, not a half-hour service and a three-hour party, and that's the end of it. Maybe a week long, and so day after day, there were different events that would happen. Normally, wedding would start midweek. Town would come out and celebrate, and there would be wine flowing through this whole time. Many times we plan for a certain number of guests. If you were a first century couple in the town of Cana, you would plan for basically everybody in town to come to the party. And we try to prepare for the unexpected. Nearly 25 years ago, Paula and I got married, and we invited a young person whom we had met when we were touring. She had gotten close to the two of us, and she lived in Pennsylvania. And it was somewhat of a courtesy invitation. You know that happens, right? There are people who plan weddings who invite people that they don't expect to come. Maybe out of town friends or family members aren't really expected to attend, but it's a courtesy. We've received some wedding invitations for family members who live on the other side of the country or friends we've known on the, you know, maybe in the Midwest, and we can't just pick up and hop on a plane and go there multiple times, maybe in a calendar year. It's hard to do. And so we wouldn't necessarily be expected. We didn't expect her to attend. And not only did she come, she uh, brought with her her family. (laughs) And so there were four extra spaces at our reception that needed to be set. Thankfully, caterers often have a bit of extra on hand aware that this might happen. 
in this case, in Cana, suddenly, it seems, the wedding party ran out of wine. Verse 3 says this, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Social faux pas. Potentially embarrassing, if not maybe even devastating to this family hosting this wedding. Mary, possibly related or at least, you know, somewhat familiar or known to the bridal families. Otherwise, how or why would she get involved is, is a fair question to ask. But the question for us to consider is where do you turn in time of need? Would you panic if that were to happen? If there's no 7-Eleven or BevMo to just run to and get more, what would you do? I mean, I don't know that we would expect Jesus to repeat this miracle for us on the whatever party we might be throwing. But when it comes to a time of need like this, maybe we would try to hide our mistakes or shift the blame from ourselves to someone else or some reason this happened. Or we try to overcome obstacles on our own. If I just work harder, if I just do more, if I just can overcome this obstacle, then things will get better. Then maybe I'll save face. That this embarrassing situation, I can figure out a way to fix it. Maybe not too many people will know or remember. Where do you turn? Mary turned to Jesus. And her statement and his response are really interesting. They have no wine. And what follows is a time of observation and obedience. Jesus responds, what does this have to do with me? Or actually, it can be translated, what does this have to do with me and you? What does this have to do with us? My time has not yet come. And in that moment, he's thinking ahead. Because when his time comes, it's when he goes to the cross. And what does he mean by that is also an interesting question that we really can't fully grasp and understand. What does this have to do with you and me? My time has not yet come. This is not why I'm here. Is that what Jesus is saying? It's not time for me to reveal my glory and power and authority on earth. My time has not yet come. Possibly. John doesn't actually tell us fully what Jesus means by that. But what we get to see is what happens, what he does. So even though he says... What is that to me, or what is that to us? He takes action. The, th the servants filled the jars. There's some obedience for you. That happens in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. There's one more detail in this narrative that's important to understand. There were stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification. The ritual washings that would take place before meals. So before this feast, 
the people who had gathered had washed their hands with water from these six stone jars that were there. The, the stone was considered impervious to impurity, so it could be used again and again. And that water would be considered clean. So Jesus chooses those. Those stone vessels connected to the rites of purification to become the wineskins in this miracle, displaying the transformation that's happening between the old and the new. And I don't think that's by accident, that that's what Jesus chooses to use as a vessel to hold the wine that he is going to make. I wonder if those servants, as they're filling the jars, are reluctant or confused. I mean, I can't imagine that they saw this coming. John clearly says this is the first of his signs. So what could they possibly have expected when Jesus says, fill the jars with water? They have no more wine, so fill the ritual cleaning jars with water. What does that have to do with the problem we have with the party? But they did it. And not only did they fill them, they filled them up to the brim, completely filled. They are the ones who get to understand what happened, and that's what verse 9 tells us, that the servants knew. They knew because of their obedience. They knew because they got to be involved in this miracle. See the signs. See, Jesus' glory was on display. We learn in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That almost sounds matter of fact. His disciples believed in him. Thus far, they'd been following Jesus. And the way that John's gospel reads, he's picked up a few disciples along the way, and some were looking for them, for him, and, you know, one runs and tells another, hey, we've found the Messiah. And they follow, curious, possibly. Is he the one who is to come? And let's take a look, and let's follow But maybe they didn't believe quite yet. As they followed him, they wanted to know more. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to see what he would do. But here it is. His disciples believed in him as he manifested his glory. See, in John, the signs point to the identity, the nature, and the purpose of Jesus. The signs are like we experience signs. When we're driving, the signs point the way. They give us information. They help us navigate. And in John, as these signs of Jesus are shown, they point the way. They give information. And they help followers of Jesus navigate. So here's a question, what is Jesus telling you to do? Obedience is important. Obedience to Jesus is important 
here in the gospel and in our lives. Because we get to participate in the purpose of Jesus. Have you thought much about that? That we participate in the purpose of Jesus in the way like the servants in this miracle did. When Jesus says to go, we should go. Or to do. Because often Jesus meets our meager resources with his power. Here, taking ordinary water and turning it to wine. We'll see when he gets five fish and some, or five loaves and a couple of fish, and he can feed 5,000 with it. Peter had to put the nets into the water in order to catch the fish. And he had to get out of the boat in order to step on that water. Jesus uses mud in the eyes of a blind man. There's ordinary water in our font when we have a baptism. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's bread and wine that Jesus uses to be his body and his blood. They don't start out different from bread and wine. The ingredients, the supplies are the same. But in the hands of Jesus, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. The the mundane becomes the miraculous. The regular becomes far superior. This is what Jesus does. And he can use things that we supply and we offer, like a simple word or a gesture of kindness or a cup of cool water or a moment of friendship and care and compassion. He can use the simple things that we have to manifest his glory in the lives of us and other people. What can we offer? What might Jesus be calling us to use? Sometimes I think we we want to come to Jesus with the wine already in hand. Jesus, here's something good. Here's something useful. Here's something valuable for you to put to use. But he can use the simple, the straightforward, the basic, the plain to do far more than we might understand. Because what we understand and what we see is that Jesus responds to our needs. Jesus' response demonstrates his abundance. They have no more wine. Fill the jars with water. And they take some out and take it to the master of the feast, who turns and says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You've kept the good wine until now. The best is yet to come. You understand that the best is yet to come, right? That there's more. John chapter 10. John records Jesus saying words, I have come that they may have life and have it 
to the full or have it abundantly. That might not look like we hope it looks or want it to look or maybe expect it to look in this lifetime. But an abundant life in Jesus is a life that looks ahead and a life that sees, even in ordinary things, the extraordinary. The abundant life is a life of faith that goes forward, even in times of challenge, that trusts when we don't see an answer, that understands that the one among us is here for us, And we can believe in his power. Believing in his power, we can trust in his purposes. Because he does more than we ask or imagine. If you picture yourself in Cana that day, are you attending the party? Are you one of the servants? Are you one of the disciples? watching Jesus, wondering what he might do? Are you the person who sees the miracle? Are you the person who is obediently part of it? Wherever you might imagine yourself in that narrative, we can understand this. Jesus does more than we ask or imagine. Because only few of us at best would probably imagine Jesus meeting that need in that way. We probably don't imagine Jesus meeting our needs in a way that is far superior than what we would expect. The one who saves the best for last is described this way in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The Lord Jesus who works miracles from the mundane wants us to trust in him and wants us to know that he responds to our needs. Needs that we see, that we recognize needs maybe that we don't, and responds in ways that are powerful and go beyond what we even ask or imagine. Amen.